Welcome to Magenta Nation, the podcast series that presents the facts about controversial issues so you can have informed opinions and the information you need to explain your viewpoint. This is Joy Scott, your host. I'm a business person and an author who's very deeply concerned about healing the divide within America. You can read more at www.magenta-nation.com. The topic of this segment is one that's very important to all of us. What is America's path to economic prosperity? Everybody wants financial security, and we want a strong national economy to support our standing as a world leader. But there are strong differences of opinion in how to get there, which are often based on ideology as much as economics. First, let's take a look at the basis of the American economy today. It's capitalism. This is an economic system where private entities own and control labor and capital in accordance with their interests. This model is also called a free market or free enterprise economy. In this economic system, the means of production are privately owned, and production is guided and income distributed mostly through the operation of markets. One of the first major descriptions of the capitalistic economic system was The Wealth of Nations, written by Scottish philosopher Adam Smith in 1776, ironically, same year as our Declaration of Independence. The wealth of nations would serve as a guide for much of the development and path of capitalism from its infancy into the following centuries. It recommended that economic decisions were best left to the freedom of self-regulating market forces. So capitalism continued to evolve during the Industrial Revolution, which created more defined classes of workers and saw the emergence of capitalist-driven income inequality. What that means is that in a capitalist system, those who controlled the means of production could achieve great wealth. However, workers were at the mercy of the ups and downs of market forces and the desire of the owners to achieve greater wealth by paying workers low wages, leaving most of them at the subsistence level of survival or worse if ill health or bad luck fell upon them. The miseries of working class people in this period would inspire the thinking of Karl Marx's communist principles. The Great Depression, a hundred years later, saw a significant turning point as the principles of laissez-faire or hands-off capitalism revealed its limitations. Markets were overextended. There were no safeguards for investors or workers. As a result, the economy collapsed and led to major suffering, with 25% of the American people being unemployed. As a result, the government stepped in to create jobs, ensure that banks were sound, and introduce regulations to protect individuals from exploitation. While many people today remain concerned about government playing too big a role in the economy, reforms like Social Security to provide an income to the elderly, Medicare for health care, and a safety net for the poor became established components of American society. The country's economic principles changed again in the 1980s with the rise of supply-side economics. What's supply-side economics? It is a theory that says that increased production is the driver of economic growth. Policies related to money are focused on creating a better climate for business, using tax cuts and deregulation. The theory is that lower taxes and freedom from regulation create benefit for companies and allow them to hire more workers, which creates job growth, which creates more demand, which fuels the economy. Supply-side theory is based on the idea of the Laffer curve. In 1974, Arthur Laffer argued that tax cuts relate directly to government spending, 
every dollar in cuts creates a dollar in reduced government spending. He claimed that the tax cut also multiplies economic growth. Dollars cut translate into increased demand, stimulating growth of business and increased hiring. However, there are some considerations to look at when cutting taxes and evaluating the effectiveness of this theory. Is the economy growing or in a recession? Which taxes and whose taxes are cut? How high were taxes before they were cut? If they were very high, the cut has a significant effect. But if they were low already, there is minimal impact. Supply side is similar to, but not exactly the same as, trickle-down economics, which says benefits for the wealthy trickle down to everybody else. So if the wealthy get tax cuts and an unfettered environment in which to increase their wealth, they will invest more and create more wealth for others. Trickle-down economics assumes that it is the wealthy who are the real drivers of growth, as they own most of the means of production. Theoretically, workers will financially benefit through higher wages, and in turn, their spending helps drive the economy. These policies became popular during the administration of Ronald Reagan. However, rather than being implemented in their purest form, they were coupled with a significant increase in government spending. Thus, it could be argued that the economic benefits may have been due to increased federal spending instead of the theory of supply-side or trickle-down economics actually working. George W. Bush would again use trickle-down tax cut theories to combat the 2001 recession. Again, though, it is unclear ultimately whether it was the tax cuts or lowering of the federal funds rate by the Federal Reserve that ended the recession. However, the theory of supply-side economics and trickle-down economics is still broadly embraced as a key to a healthy economy. Cut taxes for the wealthy, deregulate for the sake of business so that they can make more profits, and cut taxes on business is seen as a recipe for economic prosperity. Has it worked? Well, what is clear is that income inequality has grown over the past two generations. From 1970 to 2016, the aggregate income for upper-income households grew about 70%, while middle-income households only grew 50%. Lower-income household aggregate income grew the least, about a 40% increase over this 50-plus period of time. More disturbingly, however, is the change in the share of national income and wealth each bracket has experienced. Upper-income households have gone from holding 29% of aggregate income in 1970 to 48% in 2016. Middle-income households decreased in their share from 62 to 43, and lower-income households decreased as well from 10% to 9%. The rich are getting richer while the middle-class and lower-income households are getting poorer. Research from Stanford economist Gabriel Zuckman even discovered that the average incomes for the top 1% of earners after taxes has tripled since 1970, growing by more than $800,000 by 2018. Now, supply-side economics and trickle-down theory are blamed for the widening wealth gap in which lower- and middle-class individuals suffer income stagnation while the wealthy become even more spectacularly rich. Several real-world applications of trickle-down theory resulted in it being rejected by major economic figures and institutions. For example, the state of Kansas applied trickle-down economic theory when it cut business taxes by a third. As a result, state income went into the red. The benefits accrued to a small group of the wealthy who didn't invest to spur the state's economic growth as had been expected. 
Decreased state revenues resulted in curtailed public education. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, also rejected trickle-down theories in official reports. It found the opposite of the trickle-down economic theory to be true. Increasing incomes for low- and middle-class earners is the practice that actually increases growth, while increasing incomes for the top 20% creates lower growth. A 1% increase in wealth for 20% of low-income earners creates a 0.3% growth in gross domestic product, while increasing the income of the top 20% of earners created negative 0.08% growth in GDP. This translates into the increase in wealth for low-income earners producing almost five times as much GDP growth as increasing the income of wealthy people. This is worth restating. When lower- and middle-class Americans make more money, it's good for the country's productivity and economic health. When the wealthy make more, the economy declines. Although it may sound logical, today trickle-down economics is used primarily to increase the wealth of the high-income earners. Middle- and lower-wage earners are told it will benefit them, but the facts refute this statement. Growing economic disparity between the rich and poor or middle class has led to calls for increasing taxes on the wealthy and insisting that they pay their fair share to support America, the country whose free enterprise system made their wealth possible. So where are we? In terms of how Americans look at the economy, it is easy to see the appeal of supply-side economics, lower taxes for business and fewer regulations. However, unfettered capitalism has not proven itself to be best for the majority of Americans. Taxes on business and individuals fund necessary public services from education to waste collection to military defense. Regulations ensure clean air, food, and water, which everyone needs to survive, and protects workers and communities from unsafe conditions. Arguments against government and taxation need to be thought through amidst the realistic conclusions of what we would lose should they be taken away. Consideration also needs to be given to the inconsistencies of how free market economic theories are applied and their consequences. Let's take the national debt. Democrats are usually associated with the practice of government spending and Republicans with more conservative spending. Yet, since the 1970s, the national debt has increased the most under Republican presidents until the Great Recession of 2008 when government spending was required to stave off an even more damaging depression that had occurred under the Republicans. So the party that's blamed for excessive government spending and fiscal irresponsibility actually behaves with more restraint, while the party espousing free enterprise actually depends more on debt than on wealth creation through production. Again, this is the opposite of current thinking and traditional positioning of the two political parties. Another factor to consider is the ebb and flow of recessions and economic prosperity. The Joint Economic Committee of the United States Congress reported in 2016 that since World War II, the economy has fared better under Democratic administrations than under Republican ones. The top performing administrations based on economic growth were Kennedy Johnson, Truman, Clinton, and Carter, who tied with Reagan. Also, major recessions were more likely to develop during Republican rather than Democratic administrations. Ironically, poor economic situations have created opportunities for Democrats to be elected and stabilize the situation only to be voted out by Republicans saying they will make people even richer through tax cuts and deregulation. 
However, those practices, as we've seen, only work for the elite wealthy, both on an individual basis and as the owner of the means of production. An example is the Obama administration stabilizing the Great Recession and leading a robust economic recovery. The Trump administration then came in and took credit for this recovery. As Republicans again leave office, the economy is once again struggling. Let's restate this because it's really important and the opposite of prevalent thinking. The Republicans claim to be the champions of free enterprise and promise prosperity for business and individuals. However, their economic policies increase the national debt, bring on recessions, and make middle-class and lower-class workers worse off. Only the rich benefit. Deregulation can lead to abuse of financial institutions and irresponsible investing that can create another recession, harming the middle class even more. On the other hand, economic policy during democratic administrations, rather than something to be feared, has actually made the country and its workforce more well-off and prosperous. If we want true prosperity, it's really important for all citizens to look below the rhetoric into the reality of what is done and its consequences. Citizens who are not wealthy, including middle-class families and small business owners, are being misled by supporting a philosophy that does the opposite of what it claims to do. Business people and those who aspire to be economically successful must look behind their traditional beliefs about deregulation, taxes, and free enterprise to see what benefits their aspirations in reality. In conclusion, let's look at what type of economic system is best for America today. Its core belief in free enterprise is at the heart of Americans' belief in freedoms. However, in the complexities of society today, it must be recognized that unfettered capitalism will create a small ruling class of wealthy, powerful individuals with the majority of Americans teetering on the brink of financial devastation if something goes wrong in their lives, like ill health or a recession. It makes far more sense to enact measures that provide the tools to have not only a healthy economy, but a healthy society. And that includes a skilled and trained workforce, a healthy workforce, mentally, physically, and emotionally, a safe workplace, regulations to ensure the safety and health of all Americans, oversight to ensure that those who control the means of production act responsibly and not just for their own financial interests. Preservation of the natural resources necessary for our survival, air, water, land, plants, animals. An informed public making voting and other decisions based on facts and current information. And finally, more equitable distribution of wealth. If taxes are considered an investment, in return we should receive public services, protection, safety, and education and health care. Everyone should be required to make that investment commensurate with their means. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Magenta Nation podcast series. To read more, again, visit www.magenta-nation.com.